Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Here we are together again. You guys ready for this? 14 days into 21 days of prayer and fasting. I hope you're joining us as a leadership as we are engaging in this um, unique opportunity. I'm on stage today because uh, last week you guys had an opportunity to send off one of your pastors, Pastor Dale Shillington to uh, start a new ministry in one of our other campuses, the Willow campuses. And so you said goodbye, but today they're saying hello. And Pastor Jonathan went with them to participate that and do a ceremony to welcome not only Pastor Dale, but also Josh O'Donnell as they're stepping into that new ministry. So you get me for today, but that's where they are at. And uh, man, it is good to be with you. Um, And we are, we are talking about prayer and fasting, and we dove into it last week, and this is kind of our second installment. But I just want to start by um, welcoming you to the room and to the conversation, because fasting is something that isn't often discussed, and yet it's a very biblical thing for us to engage in. And so if you haven't been with us, um, I want to just set the tone for just a little bit to re-engage why it is that as a church, every year at this time, we engage in these 21 days of prayer and fasting. And the first reason is very, very simple and yet very important for those of you who call yourselves Christians. Christians are identified as those who want to follow Jesus, So you are a Jesus follower, and here's the thing that Jesus did. Jesus fasted. So if you want to be a Jesus follower, guess what one of the things that you're actually going to participate in is? Now, I understand there may be medical reasons to not fast, but as a norm, as a general experience, one of the tools that Jesus gave us and exemplified for us was the tool of fasting. But there are other good reasons as well. In fact, this one might even be um, just as good. And that is, uh, you know, Jesus and the Pharisees had lots of interactions over the years. One of the interactions that they had with Jesus is they tried to pit John the baptizer against Jesus. And the way they did that is the Pharisees came to Jesus one day and they said, Hey, Jesus, um, here's what we've noticed. We've noticed that John's disciples fast. Now, this is a normal protocol in that day and age, especially if there was a, something you were praying for. Fasting and prayer were together. And uh, Jesus responds. His response is critical and it's informative. And he says this to the Pharisees. My disciples don't fast because how can they when the bridegroom is with them? In other words, Jesus pointing to himself says, I'm the bridegroom. How can they fast when the feast is here? When the wedding party is right now, then he says this, but someday, someday when I'm gone, someday they will fast. 
And as a matter of fact, they did. In fact, not just those immediate disciples, but the apostle Paul who came later. All of them practiced prayer and fasting. Of course, the one that's maybe most familiar to us is that when Jesus is giving instructions on a particular kind of fast, a private fast, Jesus says, and when you fast, right? Uh, assuming that fasting is taking place and putting some guardrails on it, but he's also saying this at the same time. For all of those out there who are like, I don't know, fasting, I don't know if that's good for me. He simply says this, fasting isn't a religious exercise that will harm you. It's not asceticism. It's one of the things that isn't about severe treatment of the body, which is condemned in the scriptures as a matter of fact. Instead, he's saying fasting is an appropriate way to have a relationship, a deeper relationship with God. And so what we're really talking about when we're talking about fasting is giving ourselves a chance to sharpen our skills in learning to listen to God and his agenda for our lives. In fact, everywhere fasting is mentioned in the scriptures, it always comes with purpose. It isn't aimless, which is why we say around here, it's not a diet. It comes with a purpose. Donald Whitney in his book on spiritual disciplines mentions 10 good purposes for fasting. One of those purposes is this, to ask God for his guidance, which is essentially at the heart of what we're doing right now as a church. We're saying as a leadership, God, would you guide us into 2023? Would you guide us into our future? And we really want to assess and we want to say, listen, we say these are our values. This is our mission. This is our vision. Have we ordered our ministries in such a way that those things can actually be fulfilled? God, what is it that you're speaking to us that's new that we haven't engaged in that we need to engage in? Or God, what is it that we need to correct? All of those things are valuable things. And so every year we enter into this process. And this year we're saying, God, would you guide us? So we've been asking some questions and we have been turning to a prayer found in 1 Corinthians called the prayer of Jabez. But here's the first question last week we launched into as we started this series, the question is this, how is God asking us to expand our borders? How is he asking you personally, in your family, at work? How is he asking us to expand our borders, our influence, and our ministry for his kingdom? And one of the things we garnered from the prayer of Jabez, which we will get into again in a different way, is that Jabez has this incredible prayer. And it's an incredible prayer. He says, listen, um, God, would you expand my borders, expand my horizons? Maybe, maybe you could say, expand my view of you. But kingdom expansion was a part of Jabez's prayer. And so we want to ask the similar question. God, how is it that you are expanding our borders? And are we orienting our lives accordingly as individuals and as a church Today, we ask a different question that takes us into the conversation. Here's the question we want to ask today, and it piggybacks off of last week. As we say yes to God's expansion, the things that he's revealing, the things that he's declaring, that he's showing to us, are we intentionally creating space in our lives to partner in what it is that he is doing? Are we creating space? Are we orienting our lives to God's agenda, his kingdom expansion? 
The reason that we ask this question is because it's not necessarily inevitable that we will create space. As a matter of fact, we could ask God for kingdom expansion in our lives. We could even say yes to it when he reveals it. And at the same time, fail to create space that would actually allow it to flourish. In fact, there are several stories that come to us from the New Testament where Jesus is engaging with people and his disciples. They're lessons for us. And the first one is incredibly haunting to me. It comes to us from John chapter 5. And it's a story um, about this pool, this pool called Bethesda. And at this pool, all the sick and the lame would come and they would sit there. And there was this teaching that, that every once in a while, the Spirit of God would somehow, or an angel of the Lord, would somehow stir the waters of the pool. And as it stirred the waters of the pool, if anybody could get over to the edge and get into the water, that you had a chance at being healed. Well, Jesus brings his disciples into this setting, into this arena of healing, and he engages a man. And the man is 38 years old, and he was lame from birth. He couldn't walk, and he was in need of healing. Obviously, you would assume he was there to get healed. But the way the text reads, there's a tension that Jesus surfaces that he wants his disciples, and by extension, us, to get in on. And here's the tension. Here's a man who obviously has been sitting there for a very long time, and yet Jesus asks this question. Do you want to be healed? Isn't that an odd question to ask somebody who has been lame for 38 years? Do you want to be healed? I mean, his disciples must have thought, Jesus, come on. What kind of a question is that? Well, of course he wants to be healed. Look where he's sitting. What's interesting about that question is as a man responds, he says, essentially, how can I Every time the water stirs, I'm not able to get over to be healed. But I think Jesus is exposing something else in the story by asking the question, you know, you actually want to have to get healed to get healed. And not everybody does. Not everybody has created the space for that to take place. Somewhere along the line in this man's journey, life became manageable. Life became small, and he was content. And in that contentment, he no longer was able to see the power that stood right in front of him. And by the way, other people did. You remember, we just went through Christmas together, and you've got Anna and Simeon, and you've got these people who lived in expectancy for Messiah. They knew he was coming, that they knew he was near. Maybe even in their lifetime that Messiah would come, they were eagerly searching. They were creating space in their life to receive their king. Even the shepherds, right? We have the wise men showing up. They created space. They moved their lives around and oriented them in order to welcome the Messiah. But here Messiah is in Jerusalem. This man is not sure if healing is really what he wants. Sometimes, sometimes we don't create space because we're willing to settle for less than God's expansion in our lives. There's another story that comes to us out of Luke chapter 9. 
It's similar, but it's maybe on the other end of the spectrum. And it's a story of Jesus, and, um, and he's, uh, he's in this crowd, and again, there are his disciples and everybody else, and then somebody sort of just yells out, and they say, Jesus, um, I'm willing to follow you wherever you go. It was an honorable thing to say. And Jesus uses this moment as an opportunity to invite everybody into a deeper conversation. And he doesn't look at the man who says, I'm willing to follow you wherever he goes. He does something terrifying. He looks at the dude next to him and he points at him and says, you follow me. And the guy's got to be sitting there going, no, I didn't say that. I didn't speak up. What do you want from me? Jesus looks at him and says, you follow me. What would you do in that moment? Well, this man decided in this moment to say this. He says, Jesus, I'd love to follow you, but would you permit me to bury my father? And Jesus' response is interesting. And at some level, sounds horrific, certainly insensitive. But Jesus looks at the man in that moment and says, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Preach the good news of the kingdom. Well, another man is standing next to him and Jesus identifies him and points to him and says, you follow me. This man does something similar, except his is even less significant than burying a dead body. His excuse for not following was simply this. I'd love to follow you, but can I just go say goodbye to my family? And Jesus essentially responds in kind and simply says, listen, I need you to follow me. No, you can't go say goodbye. And then he begins to teach how it isn't that burying the dead is the problem or even saying goodbye to your family is the problem, but anything that takes priority over the kingdom becomes the problem. And in this moment, the point is clear to the disciples. It's all about allegiance. See, one of the reasons we don't create space for kingdom expansion is because we have divided hearts and therefore divided loyalties. And in some case, idolatry. And family can become that, as a matter of fact. I think Jesus understood that this was a struggle, not just for those individuals, but also for his disciples. Earlier in the same chapter, in Luke chapter 9, we have this story. It's Jesus, of course, and he needs to feed thousands of people. We've been in on this story before. But this time around, as they're looking for how to feed everybody, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says something to them. I think they never forgot it. In fact, it's why Luke records it. But here's what Jesus says to his disciples He doesn't say, Where's the beef? Where's the food? Instead, he looks at them and he says, you feed them. Again, it seems sort of harsh and maybe out of character for our understanding or expectation of Jesus. But what is it that he's getting at? His his disciples were followers. I mean, literally, right? They were following Jesus everywhere. They slept together. They ate together. They did everything together. They worshiped together. They taxed, you know, tithed together. Everything happened together. And yet Jesus says there's something else keeping you from creating space for kingdom expansion. There's something you're missing. There's something that maybe all of us face, and it's a certain passivity that can creep into our lives, a lack of engagement. 
and therefore lack of faith that we can do some of the things that Jesus is actually calling us to do. And if we don't believe that we can do what Jesus calls us to, we will never see kingdom expansion the way Jesus imagined it. He says, look at guys, I already showed you that I can feed thousands of people from very little. Why don't you do the same thing? And he's literally calling them from a place of passivity to a place of radical engagement and pursuit. All of those stories beg the question, don't they? When it comes to our lives, are we ordering our lives around the purpose of God, really? So we've been in this prayer, the prayer of Jabez in First Chronicles, which comes to us at the hand of Ezra the scribe. And in this prayer, one of the reasons we're identifying it and talking about it, specifically in this context, is because what Jabez does, clearly, is he makes God the center of his universe, the center of his world, the core of his decision-making. God is at the center. And as a result, he sort of prays this prayer that has this incredible goal. God, would you bless me? Kind of like a bless me beyond belief kind of a prayer. Would you expand my borders? And what this does is it acts like blinders on a horse. And in a very real way, it narrows his direction. But at the same time, it expands his horizon. So what we're going to do today is step a little bit closer in on this verse. We're going to take another look at it as we answer that second question. How is it that we are able to create space in our life that allows kingdom expansion to take place? How does that process take place? And we're going to learn a phrase, and it's a phrase embedded in Jabez's prayer that is absolutely essential. In fact, it's the key to the prayer, I think. In fact, you could pray all the rest of the prayer, but if you don't pray this way, none of it matters or has any fruit-bearing potential. It's a phrase that Jabez's Jabez used that tells us about his heart, but also tells us why God answers his prayer. So let's revisit the prayer again, and here it is out of 1 Chronicles 4, chapter 10. Jabez called out to the God of Israel. Notice that Jabez knows him by name. He's the God of Israel, and he bothers to call. That right there is a sign of relationship and faith. He says, if only you would bless me, extend my border. And then he says this, and let your hand be with me. Pause there for just a moment, right? I want you, God, the God I know, the God of Israel, the God above all other gods, I want you to do this thing for me. I want you to expand my borders. But here's what I'm really asking. I want your hand to be with me. There's a couple things that stand out immediately to me. The first one is this. Ezra, as he writes this story, he wants us in on the story of Jabez. And he's got some specific reasons. But one of them must have been that the wicked kings of Israel's never prayed like this. The wicked kings, the faithless kings of Israel's who led the people astray, they never prayed a prayer like this. They didn't call on the God of heaven. And even if they prayed grandiose prayers about acquiring things, here's what they didn't do. They never said, let your hand be with me. 
They never acknowledged the fact that everything is worthless apart from God. In a sense, Jabez is saying, here's the thing. I don't want my borders expanded apart from your power. Isn't that profound? Because that's not probably the way you and I often pray. We often want our borders expanded, but we're willing to go it alone to get there. And Jabez says, I don't even want it to happen apart from your hand. I want your hand to be a part of this, your hand of strength, your hand of power, your hand of might. Jabez, in a sense, pretends to know the heart of God. Just like Nehemiah. You guys remember the story of Nehemiah. It's a fascinating story, but it begins something like this. Nehemiah is in this capital of Susa and uh, in this other kingdom outside of Israel, right? And as he's there, he gets word from Jerusalem that the walls have not been rebuilt. Temple's up, but the walls have not been rebuilt. And uh, the people are living in shame. And so he weeps and he cries. He fasts and he prays. He prays to the God of heaven. And as he prays to the God of heaven, he actually does something that we don't often avail ourselves of. See, we've all been told that God pursues us or that God invites us into ministry, and he does. But Nehemiah is different. Nehemiah actually invites God into ministry. He says, God, I actually know your heart. I know your plans for Jerusalem. I know the prophecies about Jerusalem. Let it be me who helps the process along. Send me, God. If, if there's anything in me that you need, it's all yours. And in a sense, that's what it means to serve God. He says, I already know what you want, and it may not be me, but I am absolutely available. I am going to create space for you. And in fact, God does then usher Nehemiah into ministry. Well, the same thing is actually happening here with Jabez. Jabez isn't waiting for God to call him up. Jabez is actually saying, I already know your heart. I already know your mind. I already know what you want. Let it be me. God, I'm willing. God, I'm open. God, whatever it is, the answer is absolutely. Sign me up, coach. Put me in the game. Let your hand be with me. There's something else here that's maybe even more obvious than that, something we often try to overcome. But here's what Jabez is also praying, isn't it? I mean, you've read the verse, you've thought through this. Jabez is obviously saying this, God, would you keep me from, what does it say? Harm. God, I want you to expand my borders. I want your hand to guide me, to be with me. I don't want to do this alone. And here's my specific request at all of this. God, keep me from harm. What Jabez is actually praying for is strategic. He's actually praying for a reversal of fortune. And here's why I say that. The word Jabez, as you learned last week, actually is a compilation of some Hebrew letters. And the word means pain. But it sounds like another Hebrew word, which means he causes pain. Which means when he's named Jabez, every time somebody learns his name, they immediately understand something about Jabez. Jabez was jaded. He was labeled as somebody who causes pain. He causes harm wherever it is that he goes. 
That's who he was. And I think there's something in Jabez that is breaking and realizing that this name, this label that he has been given is actually holding him back from kingdom expansion in his life. It's actually weighing him down. I mean, think about it for a minute. It's kind of humorous, maybe. But if you had a name like Jabez, he causes harm. Imagine trying to get a date. It's going to be a little rough out there. Trying to get married. How about landing that business deal? Oh, he, what's your name again? Come again? Are you serious? How about in the community? As you leave your community, go to the next community to do business, and then everybody finds out what your name is. They're like, why are you doing business here? What's going on here? What do you mean? I don't want anything to do with this. In a sense... Jabez wears a scarlet letter. Wherever he goes, he's identified by this name, which sounds like a word for he causes harm. Can you imagine living in that kind of an environment? What we know is that what Jabez is actually doing, because the word harm is a play on all of these words, is he's actually saying, God, would you reverse course in my life? Would you undo what mother did? Would you reverse my fortunes? I need a reversal in my life. I actually think that what has happened to my life, my life has been limited simply because of the label that has been saddled to me, strapped to me. God, I actually think you can over, here it is, I actually think you can overcome this designation. That God, doesn't matter what my past is or what labels have attached themselves to me, your goodness is such that a new story could actually be written over my life. In a very real sense, I think Jabez is saying, God, I want your goodness to wash over me so that when people think of my name, they don't think of he causes pain, but they think of God is good. He is always good. They think of kingdom expansion. They think of faithfulness. They think of honor. You see, Jabez wasn't just asking for an increase to his kingdom. He was asking for an increase to God's kingdom. And if there was anything, including a name that stood in the way, Jabez wanted it gone. Are you with me? He wanted the power and the spell, if you will, to be absolutely and for all time broken. And so he prays what I think amounts to a very bold, bold and courageous prayer. God, would you change my identity so people see me differently so that I can do more for you? This is a strategic message for Ezra in particular. As Ezra writes the book, again, he's writing the prayer of Jabez in there so that we get in on it. He wanted it to be known for that original audience too, right? That original audience of Jews who had left Persia and they had started in on a new endeavor. They had been restored to the land. They had left captivity. God had actually um, reversed fortune for them. And yet, not everything was complete. They had begun to stall out. And so Ezra has two real purposes for writing and for leaving his cushy place in Persia for the land of Israel. One, he wanted to beautify the temple. 
He believed that that place of worship said something about the nature of God, and he wanted to be as amazing as it could be. He wanted to be an attractional force in Israel like it had once been. But the other thing that he left for was he wanted moral holiness to once again characterize the nation. The Jews had actually fallen back, not into idolatry, but to intermarriage. They were no longer taking the law seriously. And so Ezra shows up on the scene and he wants to call them back to account. Hey, these are God's standards for our lives under the Mosaic law. Let's live up to them. You see, there was something left unsaid, something that remained, something that Ezra could do. He has, in fact, created space in his life for God to expand his kingdom in the land. And he identified something in Jabez that he realized the people needed to hear. They needed to know, and we need to know. It's time for kingdom expansion. It's time for God to reshape our identity. It's time to move forward with great boldness. It's time to pick it up. It's time to build. It's time to worship. All of that was on Ezra's mind. In fact, he devotes the first two chapters of, Ez, of Chronicles to prayer. And that's why he inserts Jabez into this section, a man of prayer. This story is amazing. I think it inspires some things, though. And it causes us to ask some questions. One of the questions that emerged as I was kind of working my way through it was this. Am I creating space in my life for God to do all that he's promised me? And one way I know that, well, here's another way to ask it. God, if you were to speak, have I created the space so that I could actually listen? Would I actually hear your voice if you were to speak into my life? Have I positioned myself? Is my posture such? It's 21 days of prayer and fasting. That's one of the questions that I'm asking. But I'm also asking other questions. Uh, how do I create space in my life? Well, I don't know if you know this, but we have an opportunity as pastors to go up to Victory Bible Camp, and they have a number of different cabins. And this year, I decided, hey, it's 2023. Um, I want to create a calendar for the year. I want to be very intentional about inviting God into that process, not a work calendar, even a personal calendar, just a family calendar. So I invited my family up there, and we went there a couple weekends ago, and I woke up the next morning. I remember sitting there, and it was completely pitch black outside, which was super discouraging, but I sat there on the couch, and, I, and I st it allowed me to focus, and I began to just write things down. And I began with things, whatever it is that crossed my mind, objectives, or how I could carry those objectives out for the family. And then something took place that I thought was absolutely from the Lord. As I'm creating this space for God to speak into my life, I notice as the light begins to emerge through the window that on the right side living room wall, there was a verse that had been embedded. And in that verse, the verse said this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. He will literally straighten what has been bent. Just like Jabez. What was so intriguing to me about that verse is that when Shannon and I were dating, you know, we did the Christian thing. 
We're like, so what's your favorite verse? And she's like, I don't know. What's your favorite? Anyway, so we came up with our favorite verses. The truth is we already knew what they were. Our life verses, this was our life verse. That was my life verse. When I was a kid, that was the verse. And I discovered it was also her life verse. And we begin our lives in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And we have, through the years, quoted this verse to each other in difficult times and great times, but whenever we are seeking God's guidance. And I realized in that moment that God wanted that verse once again to reshape my calendar. That I needed to bring God into every decision, every aspect of my life. And he wanted my good. And so this seemingly menial task uh, of just simply writing dates in and writing words down and objectives became an act of absolute worship. It was a truly enriching experience. I was creating space. But what I want to do is I want to give you four ways you can create space in your life. See, the problem with the example I just offered is that it's so detailed and so specific, people want to replicate it. That may not be what you need to do. So what I want to do is I want to give you four things from the story of Jabez that are more philosophical. They're directional. They're more guardrails for some of the ways that we need to be thinking if we're actually going to create space in our life for God to carry out his kingdom purposes in our life. And the first one is this. Check your story. What's so interesting to me about the story of Jabez is that Jabez found himself in a narrative that his mother had designed. But at some point in his journey, he makes a decision that it is no longer the story that best suits him or the kingdom of God. And so he has permission to switch narratives. A new story could be written because God was in his story. It's interesting because there's nothing more inefficient, I think, than actually discovering one day that the story you've been living is the wrong one. And you look backwards with regret. Jonah did this very thing, didn't he? That at some point in Jonah's life, he realized, oh, I shouldn't have resisted the word of the Lord. And all the time and all the space, not to mention three days in the belly of a fish, that he wouldn't have had to experience if he had just gotten on God's frequency and simply obeyed and listened to the voice of the Lord, believing that what God was giving him was something good because God never gives anything that's junk. Make sure the story that you're telling yourself, the story that you're living in is aligned to God's story for your life. Here's the second thing. Watch your appetite. It's no secret that whatever we feed, whatever appetite we feed, grows. Paul actually wrestled with this when he was talking theologically in the book of Romans about the flesh or sin and, um, and the spirit. And he says simply this, he goes, look, if you feed the spirit, it'll grow. The things of God will grow. Fruit will come. Mark my words, it'll be there. But guess what? Even if you're a believer, if you begin to feed the flesh, guess what will grow? The flesh will grow. And he says, these two are in opposition. They're at war with one another. So when it comes to us creating space in our lives, the question is, what are, what are we feeding? What appetites are we feeding? 
Are we feeding the right appetites? If we want the results, if we want kingdom expansion, it's not enough to say yes to God's agenda. We also have to create space. So what appetite are you buying into? What's interesting about the story of Jabez is his brothers were not as honorable, the text says, as Jabez, which is interesting. See, we have no idea what his brother's names were. I mean, this seems like sort of a wicked woman, if you ask me. Who knows what they were labeled? What excuses that they could come up with? But kind of like the man at the pool of Bethesda who had no desire to be healed because he was settling for a manageable life, his brothers were less honorable. They don't pray the prayer, but Jabez does. The Israelites also follow after idols. God becomes peripheral, a rear view mirror sort of a God. And as a result, they're kicked out of the land. It's not until they go to a foreign country that they wake up to their senses. See, it all comes back to what appetite you're feeding. Jabez was feeding an appetite that allowed him to raise up above his brothers and above many in Israel. Here's another one. The third one is remember where Jesus is seated. Frankly, for me, this is one of the most important. You can't clearly understand today's direction or the decisions that you should make if you don't understand the future you're heading toward. There's something about having a vision for Jesus on his throne. For a Jesus who is coming back to rule and to reign. For a Jesus that we are accountable for. For a Jesus who has already won all the victories. Who has already got the keys to the kingdom. There is something about that truth, that teaching, and how we operate and the space we create in today's world, in our lives. Have a view to the future. It'll inform us how to live in the present. It merges in our story as well, actually more so through Ezra. Uh, Ezra, of course, leaves to come and help rebuild uh, the temple or beautify, excuse me, the temple and call Israel back to account. But what's interesting is the fact that Israel even returns at all because they were held captive. But something happens in the captivity that Ezra gets in on and Nehemiah gets in on, and we see emerge in characters like Esther and Daniel. See, they always knew, Israel always knew that God was God over Israel, that Israel was his land and Jerusalem was his city. But having gone to captivity in a foreign country, guess what they discovered about God? they discovered that he was not just the God over Israel, but a new term was used to describe their God. He was God over heaven and earth. In fact, at Ezra's commissioning, Cyrus, who is fulfilling a prophecy of Jeremiah, actually says, the God of heaven, speaking of the God of the Jews, the pagan king over Persia, most powerful man on earth, the God of heaven, the God of heaven has made me king over all the earth to release the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple for his worship. Whoa! 
You see, what happened in captivity is remarkable. The Jews' definition of God didn't decrease or deflate. It actually increased. There was kingdom expansion even in the place of opposition, oppression, and suffering. Your circumstances have nothing to do with kingdom expansion being curtailed. It's all about what we believe. God wants kingdom expansion for our lives. We have to create the space. Having done all those three things, here's my final thought. Be bold. Be bold. You know, something about somebody else's boldness, like Jabez's boldness, that encourages our hearts. Uh, My son, Seth, who was in first service just a little bit ago. Um, Seth had quite the year. It's his senior year, and uh, he played football for Palmer. He's been doing it for four years, and you know he was a starter and a team captain. And it all sounds great, except that um, they lost all seven games that they played in, all of them. So at the end of his season, um, he got to go to the all-star game for those who feel sorry for him, and he did great. He got an interception and some other stuff, and he did great. But he realized, I don't want my season, my senior year to end this way, in defeat. There's like something wrong with that. So he took a bold move, a move that I confess I would not have done. He decided that this was the exact moment to sign up for wrestling. Now, here's the thing about wrestling. It's a highly competitive sport in the state of Alaska, more so than some other states, actually. Uh, People start wrestling at like third grade, and they persist, and they're exceptional, Uh, Seth had never wrestled before, except in sixth grade, he had about a month where he tried it and didn't like it. It was kind of a failure moment in his life. So here he is at the end of his journey in school, as far as he can tell. And he's like, I don't want it to end on a loss, a losing season. So he goes to the wrestling coach and he says, coach, sign me up. But here's the thing. The coach looks at him and says, what weight class are you? He says, well, I'm 189 pounds, solid beef. He's 17. And the the guy says, well, that's great, except that you are in the toughest weight class, in the toughest division. And because you're a senior, that's where you have to wrestle. Seth, you're literally going to lose every single match. You're going to get destroyed. Seth decides this is the moment to sign up. He signs up. And sure enough, the coach wasn't lying. I've never seen a kid get pinned so many times. But At the end of his season, Seth, who persists, started to win, and he started to pin. And he made state. He's one of the top 15 wrestlers in the state in his weight division. Something about boldness that's intoxicating, that's encouraging. I think Ezra wants the children of Israel to see something that had inspired him. Look at this man. This man's got something that you need, that you and I need. This man has a boldness and a courage about him. If we're going to complete the task and see kingdom expansion happen, take a look at Jabez. But here's why it's so important. And don't miss this. This is so important that we pray these kinds of prayers. Because the reality is we never know what hangs in the balance. See, what Ezra believed and what Nehemiah believed, and I think what Jabez believed, is that what they were building wasn't just for them, but for the next generation to come.
What they were participating in was rooted in clear prophetic utterance that someday through these walls, Messiah would walk on a donkey. The Savior of the world would come and they had this rare moment, this opportunity to actually participate in the fulfilling of that great vision. They knew what they were up to and it encouraged their hearts to move deeper into it. And as a result, they set people on fire for the things of God. It was a holiness and a movement that broke out. You can read about it in the minor prophets, the prophets that God sent to encourage Israel to fulfill their destiny. And even though they were shamed by the people around them, insults were hurled during this time because of the small things that they were about. They knew a new thing was happening with every brick that they laid. They had created space for God to fulfill his greatest purposes in their lives and in ours. The question is, will we create space? Jabez is mentioned because Ezra believed it was a life worth repeating. Here's my question for you. Is there anything about your life that's worth repeating? That you know your kids and your grandkids will say, he wasn't a perfect man, but. Is there anything? In this 21 days of prayer and fasting, even as the band leads us and the prayer teams are going to be around as we sing, I want you to be asking that question. God, as I look at my life, whatever it is or isn't, is there anything that you want that I could be doing? And is there anything that I'm doing that is worth mentioning and worth repeating? Won't you join us as we worship and as we sing? Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.